0: on today. Um, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here in the garden. And um, we've been with this life of David thing for 27 weeks now. We have this week and then next week. And then we're having a summary week the week after, and that's it. So after this week, there's only two weeks left of the life of David. It's kind of like we kind of really got comfortable with an old friend for a while, you know, but we're going to do something new. We have just want to let you know on Easter, a reminder, we have two services, one at 9 and one at 11. And I believe that we're going to take a look at Easter that most of you have never, ever heard of before. I'm pretty confident that the, the vast majority have never looked at Easter the way we're going to look at it this, this coming Easter Sunday. I'm very excited about The team is very excited about it. It's a very unique approach to celebrating Easter. Um, and then after that, we're going to do a series on what it means to be part of a movement, as opposed to being part of an institution. And the concept is that people join institutions for what they can get, and people join movements for what they can sacrifice. And we're going to be discussing that for about four weeks, so I'm very excited about that. But today, we're talking about the life of David again, and the concept that I want to give to you today is the birthplace of compassion. The birthplace of compassion, because when we talk about compassion, what we're doing is we're talking about how you look at other people, specifically how you look at other people in their time of weakness or in their time of struggle. But to do that, we need to go through the story of where we are with the life of David. If you guys remember correctly, where we left off last week was that David had left Jerusalem because his son Absalom had taken over. David feared for his life, so him and his closest allies fled up the Mount of Olives and into the wilderness where David was really hurting and broken over what was going on with his son Absalom. If you guys remember, Absalom had murdered David's oldest son, Amnon, because Amnon had raped his own sister, Tamar. So it's a very dysfunctional family. It's messed up. It's messed up. And so basically, let's go through the situation that we have here. If you guys remember last week, one of the things that God does is because, or David does, one of his trusted counselors left and went with Absalom, and it hurt David. It broke David's heart. So David prayed, God, please give Absalom bad counsel through these guys that have betrayed me. God answers David's prayer in 2 Samuel 18, and Absalom gets some very bad military advice. Some very bad military advice that leaves Absalom vulnerable to an attack from David's forces. And Absalom makes some fatal errors. And these errors put him in a situation where he brings his army, which was formidable. He had created quite a system of rebellion against his father David. And he had this army that really, in reality, had Absalom made the opposite decisions that he was about to make he probably would have been king and the enemy would have won and david would not have been king and jesus would not have been able to be our savior but god answers the prayer absalom makes some fatal military errors and he loses a great battle we see that in second samuel 18 verses 9 through 18 now when this battle begins to take place david says to his men don't kill absalom do whatever you have to do but deal gently with my son Absalom. Try to take him alive. And David wants to fight in this battle, but the men know that we're not going to let David fight with us because we're going to say, you know, David, we'd rather you not fight because it's dangerous. I mean, how many battles has David been in against pretty big enemies? That wasn't really the concern. The concern was, and Joab, who is the army's general, David's cousin, Joab is a pretty ruthless guy. And Joab is a great manipulator. We've seen that in the past when he killed people that David told him not to and still got away with it somehow. Joab says, no, no, no. It's better for you to stay home. Let us handle it. Okay, but deal gently with my son Absalom. Oh, don't worry, we will. Well, clearly that's not what happens. Joab is running this battle, and Absalom is trying to escape this battle because his army is getting their butt kicked. I mean, they're getting destroyed. As a matter of fact, the scripture says it's so bad that God's hand is so in it, not only are David's men killing all of Absalom's men, but the scripture says the woods and the wilderness actually killed more of Absalom's men than David did. I don't know if it's because they're running through the woods and they get impaled by limbs or there's beasts who are killing them, but something's going on there. And none of David's men are being killed by the woods, but Absalom's men are dropping like flies between Joab's men killing them and the woods killing them i mean it's a wild scene and absalom sees it's not going well and he begins to flee because he knows what's going to happen if i get caught they're going to execute me for treason so he's riding his horse through the woods and somehow the scripture says absalom was a beautiful guy really good looking had long hair you know what was the name of that guy who used to be on those romance novels fabio or something like that right he looked like that you know So he's riding through the woods trying to escape and the scripture says his hair gets caught in the limbs of a tree and the horse keeps going. And Absalom's hanging by his hair. And one of the guys in the army comes up and sees Absalom and leaves some guys there to make sure he doesn't get away. And he leaves and says, Joab, we found Absalom. He's hanging in a tree. And Joab says, you didn't kill him? Well, no, the, the king said, don't kill him. And Joab says, forget that. So Joab goes and the scripture says, Joab throws a spear into him like three times, and then has a bunch of other people throw spears in him. Not only does he kill Absalom, he does a really thorough job of killing him. Like he's really, 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 really killed. There's no doubt. It's not like, you know, sometimes you see somebody in a, in a cop show, they get shot, and you think there's no way they survive, and somehow they're able to muster up enough strength to grab a gun and shoot the bad guy, right? You know, it's not like that. He's dead. There's no mystery here. And so then what happens is David hears about Absalom's death. And there's tremendous grief and pain and not one drop of celebration. This is in 2 Samuel 18, 19-33. So they come back and say, David, we've won. The forces have been defeated. You are once again able to be king. Everything is fine. And David says, what about Absalom? Well, Absalom did not make it. And David sobs and weeps. Remember, this is the son who killed his oldest son, who stole the kingdom from him, and David has not one ounce of celebration, but as a father, he is grieving the death of his son. And Joab is angry about this. And Joab says to David, are you an idiot? Do you not understand what's happened here? These men have risked their life for you they've gone out and fought against the people that the people of judah had declared as king instead of you they go out they risk their life they risk their reputation they risk everything for your benefit destroy the army and all you can do is cry about your son who was a a scoundrel listen david if you don't go out there right now and thank them and show some appreciation you're going to lose their support and you will never be king again It's an amazing relationship David has with Joab. This has gone on like three or four times in their life, you know? Only Joab could speak to David this way. I mean, Joab has killed a lot of David's enemies, even ones that David didn't want him to kill. And how strange this relationship is. Joab is a tough, tough, cold-hearted man. But David needs him. And I think the reason for David's mourning over Absalom wasn't just that he was the father who lost another son, but I think it's because he realized that the acts of Absalom were a direct result of David's sins, right? Remember we talked about how Absalom fled to to Bathsheba's granddad's house and, and all these things, and so what we see happen here is David, I'm sure, is thinking, if I had not sinned with Bathsheba, if I had dealt with Amnon and Tamar correctly absalom probably would not be dead and so david knew that ultimately he was responsible for the death of his son actually he knew he was responsible for the death of both of his sons he knew he was responsible for the for the rape of his daughter it was on him but david does return to jerusalem in second samuel 19 we see that in verse 8 to 15 and david decides though before he returns to wait To make sure that everyone is on board with him coming back. This is an incredible act of humility. The important tribe of Judah who had turned their back on David and embraced Absalom. And you understand why, right? It wasn't that they were some sort of treasonous people. They were saying, this guy David has been out of control between Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And then not dealing with Amnon and Tamar. I mean, so the tribe of Judah is the one that embraced Absalom as king. But David says, yes, I've won. Yes, I have a right to the throne, but I'm not going to return until those who wanted me out want me back in. And in many ways, he throws himself at the mercy of the people he's just defeated. And in the long process of negotiations and discussions, there's a deal struck, a political and an emotional deal that struck, and David says, tell you what, I'll forgive you, you forgive me. And you, tribe of Judah, escort me back into Jerusalem as king. Now, some of the other tribes that went with David are angry. But David says, no, this is how it has to be. And then something tremendously miraculous happens. And I have to tell you, if I had been King David, I don't know that I could have done this. In 2 Samuel 19, verse 16 to 41, there's a list of people and groups of people that david pardons for their rebellion for their betrayal most kings in that day and age would have done what they would have killed them all listen you betrayed me you're done david meets with them all individually and as a group and he says listen i'm gonna forgive you the first one is Shimei. Now, some of you may not know who Shimei is. When David was walking up the Mount of Olives as he was leaving Jerusalem, at probably his lowest point in his life, his son Absalom has betrayed him. He's lost Amnon and the whole thing with Tamar, and he's lost the kingdom that God had promised him and all these things. There's a guy named Shimei who was a descendant and a follower of Saul, and he's throwing rocks at David. David. You know, you're a dog, you're a terrible person, you're a terrible king. You tore the kingdom out of Saul's hand. If Saul were still our king, we wouldn't be having these problems. And he's making fun of David, he's calling him terrible names, throwing rocks at him as David walks up the Mount of Olives. And some people said, David, do you want me to go kill the guy? And David says, no, he has a right to say what he's saying. In some ways, he's correct. So Shimei meets with David. Throwing rocks, insults. And he tries to apologize. And David's at his lowest point in life. And he says this to Shimei. He says, Shimei, what have I to do with you? Why are you even discussing this with me? It's done. You're forgiven. It never happened. That's stunning. And then he meets with Mephibosheth. If you remember, Mephibosheth was actually the son of Jonathan, Saul's son. So he's Saul's grandson. Jonathan, who David loved, had this incredible relationship with this friendship. David had said, I'm going to take care of you, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had actually turned and went with Absalom in this. And he meets with David, and David says, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? And Mephibosheth says, and I don't know if he's lying or whatever, he says, listen, my servant came to me and said that you had done this and done that, and and none of it was true, but when I heard it, I turned and went with Absalom because I thought that was the side of righteousness. What should I do? And here's what David says, very similar to what he said before, Mephibosheth, why are you even talking about this? I love you, I forgive you, it's done, it never happened. And then the men of Judah. Now, do you remember I told you a couple weeks ago what happened was that Absalom had had convinced 200 of the, the most influential men in all of Israel to go with him? That's who these men were. And David meets with them. He allows them, these 200 men that were the core of Absalom's power base, he meets with them and allows them to be the people who lead him back into Jerusalem to his house. Isn't that amazing? You see, because here's what I think happens, right? David is remembering what he had just gone through in the wilderness under Saul. Remember when Saul was chasing him, trying to kill him. He remembers what he's gone through in the wilderness as he fled Absalom. He remembers the emotional wilderness that he went through with Bathsheba when he lost the child that he got Bathsheba pregnant with outside of wedlock. And what happens is this changes his ability to look at others. And it gives him this incredible, I think, personally, supernatural, not human, supernatural ability to be compassionate. You know, it's pretty clear that the wilderness at every point in David's life, whether it was wilderness he brought on himself or because of his sin, or wilderness that was brought on because somebody else doing something negative to him that he did not deserve. It's pretty evident that the wilderness is what made David stronger, right? As a man of war and as a leader. But it also made him gentler at the same time. And more compassionate. You know, say what you want about David, and we cataloged he's pretty much a scoundrel. He's got a dark, black heart. There's a lot of things about David that we don't like. You know, he's a murderer and all. But it's really hard, even in the midst of that, guys, this is important, it's very hard to find a hypocritical bone in David's body. It's the one redeeming quality that I love most about David. It's that he is, this is important, this is one of the focal points of the whole series, it is this, that David is keenly in tune with his depravity. David lives in the light. He knows I'm not a good dad. I'm not a good king. I'm a good warrior, but I'm not a good person. And the only reason I have favor with God over all these other people is grace and mercy. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Can you see how David did this? Paul wrote this in the New Testament. David is king. Yeah, he continually, as he's dealing with his brokenness and his flawed personality and his flawed lifestyle and all these things, what we see, what we begin to see in David and sometimes it manifests itself, I understand this, and sometimes it manifests itself in dysfunctionality to the point where he doesn't deal with things the way he should. I get that. But David is not judgmental. Now, interesting, the last time we saw David judgmental was when the prophet came and said, hey, there's a rich man Who's gonna take the poor man's lamb and kill it and feed his guests? And David said he should be destroyed. He should be put to death. And the prophet said, You're that man because you took Uriah's wife. That's the last time we saw David be arrogant and judgmental. And he somehow, this king who has the favor of God, which he does not deserve. I mean, if you compare what David did to what Saul did, David's was a lot worse. But somehow this man thinks of others as better than himself, submits himself to the 200 people that betrayed him, and says, I won't come in until you invite me back. Here's an example. Me and my driving. You know, I really don't have very much room to withhold forgiveness to anyone on the street for any type of driving sin, except for going too slow. I'm good with that one. I don't have to forgive anybody because, you know, I never go too slow. (laughs) I don't have a problem with that one. But some reason, somebody cuts me off, I get angry, I wave to them. (laughs) I still seem to withhold traffic mercies on people. And why is that? Is it possible that I'm just not in touch with how bad a driver I really am? Is it? Some of you say, that's clearly it. <laughs> I mean, just how much room do I have? How much room do you have to be arrogant and judgmental on the road? Because it's funny, and I know some of you will never admit this, or maybe, you know, look, maybe you're just more godly than me on the street. I don't know. But for me... There is not one thing that I've gotten mad for somebody for doing on the street that I haven't done myself. Again, with the exception of going too slow. But for some reason, I still seem to find a way in my life to withhold traveling mercies, road mercies. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's James again. You see, when you have tasted grace and mercy in your own wilderness, when you're in touch with what your own wilderness brings, it should transform the way you handle the flaws of others around you. You know, there's an interesting connection. David in the wilderness becomes a king with compassion, willing to forgive almost anything. Right? Jesus in the wilderness... A savior willing to die for us and be a sympathetic savior that we need. Now this is a concept that you might not appreciate, but Jesus was fully human, guys. There's no question that in his time in the wilderness, it helped him understand the frailty of humanity. No question. Joe, come on. Jesus was God. He can't learn. Oh, yes, he could. That's the whole point of being fully human. And the scripture says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, the difference is Jesus doesn't fall because he's also fully God. But Jesus understood because of what? The wilderness. He understood compassion. Just like David. Last week I asked you if you could ever look forward to the next time hardship came. I mean, James says to count it a joy when you go through wilderness trials, does he not? He says, and we talked about James for about two months, count it a joy when you go through these these trials. Is it possible that David learned more from his times in the wilderness about God than any other time? Is it possible that Jesus learned how to be sympathetic? How hard it is to be human while in the wilderness? Is it possible that the wilderness is not only the birthplace of compassion, but also the birthplace of wisdom and maturity? Is it possible that the key to spiritual maturity isn't your knowledge about Scripture, but an understanding of how much you need mercy in the wilderness? Is it possible that you would never ask the Father of lights for wisdom that He wants to douse you with and drown you in if you'll just ask? Is it possible you never get to the point to ask Him if you do not go through the wilderness? Did He really mean to count it a privilege when you go through these trials? Psalm 110, 110 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Did you know that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, It's the fear that drives you to abandon yourself and embrace God fear is in the wilderness the wilderness the thing about the wilderness is fear because the wilderness it yields brokenness does it not whether it's a wilderness of your own making or somebody else's the wilderness yields brokenness and brokenness yields humility i can't do it on my own and humility yields compassion how can i judge anyone i'm just as bad And compassion yields wisdom. The whole story of David ends with his son Solomon saying to God, give me a double dose of wisdom. Can you see how wisdom and brokenness and humility and compassion, they're all tied together in the wilderness? David, Jesus, Solomon. You see how all this kind of begins to work together? There's an overarching theme in the Bible that is undeniable. The birthplace of compassion is the wilderness. So the question this morning, do you have a wilderness? Either of your own making or one outside of your control? Either way, it's a wilderness that can actually make you more like Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's not your knowledge that makes you more like Christ. Knowledge is good, but it's the brokenness. Because the only place we can be like Christ is compassion. Think about it. You want to be like Christ? The very first place you can go and be just like Christ, compassion for others. In the area of compassion, mercy, and forgiveness, until you learn to embrace the wilderness, you will lack compassion, you will lack humility, you will lack brokenness, and yes, you will lack wisdom. Even if you fancy yourself to be full of knowledge. Here's what I wrote in 1999. I must embrace my own wilderness, which enables me to be willing to forgive others. How can I not extend grace? Jesus gave an example of how I should pray and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Clearly, the birthplace of compassion for the weakness of others is my own wilderness. The same place Jesus learned how tough it is to be human And how he became our sympathetic high priest. So Megan's going to come out here. And we're going to end things a little differently today. What I'm going to ask you to do is take a few minutes just to reflect and pray in your seat. And as she prays, I'm going to say some things that I want you to think about. I'm going to try to lead your thoughts and let the Holy Spirit kind of take you where he needs you to go personally. But um, I want to stop and I want you to reflect on some of your public areas of sin and wilderness. Right now, just what are some things in your life that people know about that cause times of wilderness? I mean, I was joking about driving, but It's an area that I'm not like Christ. What about you? How you treat your family, your kids, your wife, your important relationships, your arrogance to people in church, how you act in the workplace. It could be a many number of things. Now, before you get overwhelmed with that list, Stop now and reflect on some of your private areas of wilderness. Ones that nobody knows about but you and Heavenly Dad. Ones that if people knew about, it would break you so low that you would never be able to judge anyone for their sin ever again. You would never be able to look down on anyone because people would know just how bad you are. Can you imagine if every one of your wildernesses was laid open, bare, for everyone to see? Now calculate, based upon the public wilderness and the private wilderness, just how much mercy you need. Scale of one to ten. Just calculate it for a minute. Do some math. It's a pretty overwhelming number, isn't it? For me, it's just... When I think about it, I can't believe I get to come up here and teach God's Word every week. Who am I? Now, personally for you, speak to Heavenly Dad right now. Thank Him for that embracing, basking in the mercy type of love that He has for you in spite of all those public and private wildernesses. Now, I want you to think about some people that you've been less merciful to. Is this an area that you need to be more like David? Man after God's own heart? Maybe more like Christ? A compassionate, sinless Savior? Do you need to be more merciful? More forgiving? Right now, just ask God to give you a greater awareness of your depravity. Ask Him. Ask Him to give you a greater awareness of just how much mercy and grace He's had to heap upon you. Now ask Him, God, give me some names of people that I have not been compassionate toward. Take me back to my wilderness. Take me back to my brokenness. Take me back to my humility. Take me back to the place where I learned what wisdom really was. It's the fear of the Lord. Take me back there and give me a new perspective on those people. The clock says we have about two or three minutes left in this time. what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Megan to play lead you in a prayer you can follow along with her or continue in your own conversation with God but we have to understand people that the birthplace of compassion is the wilderness count it a privilege when you're in the woods because that's where you learn humility, brokenness wisdom
1: Showing us compassion despite all the things that we do, despite all the times that we don't show compassion to others. um, Father, we ask for open eyes to the people that you have placed around us. um, And remember, remembering the compassion that was shown to us when we are tempted to withhold compassion from others. Father, help us to remember that you looked at us with eyes full of love. So much love that you um, said, I got this for you. Because you knew we couldn't do it on our own. So Lord, help us with those fresh eyes to look at others in the same spirit of compassionate love Love that is not withholding, love that is not dependent upon um, what people do for us or what people um, have that we can gain, but just compassion. And when, Lord, we have been wronged, especially those times that maybe we really could be justified in withholding, um, compassion, help us to remember that you were justified in withholding compassion from us, but you didn't. Give us soft hearts. I thank you for your compassion. When we leave this place today, just remove those scales from our eyes that keep us from seeing, seeing the people around us. Stand with me, church. As you prepare to leave this place today, go with fresh eyes, knowing that uh, there is one who has gone before you, who was in the wilderness, so he could learn and he could relate to everything, every single thing we're going to encounter. Our priest has already encountered for us, and he walked our road and he made a way. So that when we leave here today, we go with hope and grace and peace and with compassion. May God be with you wherever you go until we meet again. And all of God's children said,